Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston. This special project, Uncommon Ground, was supported by the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation and the Humankind Program Fund. The unlikely tale of abortion rights and anti-abortion leaders who actually became friends. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Long before it recently came to the Supreme Court, the topic of abortion was called a clash of absolutes, the right of a woman to control her own body versus the right to life of an unborn baby. The debate splits families, faith communities, and politicians. And this emotion-charged argument again fills the halls of Congress. Senator Patty Murray, Democrat of Washington. Taking away a woman's bodily autonomy impacts her whole life. Forced pregnancy limits a woman's entire economic future. It takes away her ability to determine the direction of her own life. It forces women to be pregnant and give birth when they don't want to, no matter their individual circumstance. Most Americans believe that unborn lives deserve to be protected at some point during a pregnancy. Senator Ben Sass, Republican of Nebraska. It is deeply human and deeply compassionate to recognize the humanity of an unborn life. Scientific advances like ultrasounds give us a glimpse into the lives of the unborn, first in black and white and now in 3D, and it's going to be clearer and clearer over time what that little baby is. And we all know the heaviest burdens will land on those who already face the greatest challenges, mothers who are barely scraping by. It's black women who already face a severe maternal mortality crisis. It's indigenous women, especially those on tribal lands, who suffer from violence at unprecedented levels. It is women with disabilities who may already face discrimination in routine medical care. It is women in rural communities who have less resources and are often already forced to drive miles to get the care they need. It's deeply wrong to ask Americans to participate in an act that they know takes an innocent life. This debate cuts to the heart of who we are, what we owe each other, and what kind of society we want to preserve and what kind of society we want to build. The moral weight of this debate is heavy. To talk about abortion well, we need to actually listen to each other, and we need to try to understand the best arguments of the other side and take those arguments seriously. The debate can get so heated that we often just avoid discussing it with family and friends. But it became impossible to avoid following a tragedy back in December 1994. A 22-year-old zealot traveled from New Hampshire and fired a semi-automatic rifle shooting up abortion clinics in Massachusetts and Virginia. The violence was profoundly disturbing. But it was the prelude to something remarkable, how abortion rights and anti-abortion leaders responded to those painful events. It's a little-known chapter of recent history that may point to some ways of healing at this deeply polarized moment. It was a very scary time. I mean, a madman had killed people in my neighborhood, and the sense of what could happen next was very prominent in my mind. 
Susan Podziba of Brookline, Massachusetts, a Boston suburb. She served as a mediator for a series of strictly confidential discussions between local anti-abortion and abortion rights activists in an atmosphere that had grown vitriolic and now violent. Bitter foes were forced to the table. Were you afraid that by merely sitting down and having a discussion about the subject of abortion, you were exposing yourself to some peril? I, I was afraid that if people who were opposed to dialogue knew that I was a facilitator, that I could be at some risk. Sort of the you dare not talk with the enemy philosophy. Right. And, and there were lots of quotes from people in that camp in the paper. Crafting a compromise over such deeply held personal convictions seemed unlikely. But the episode of terrorism drove the activists to look for ways to de-escalate a conflict that had spun out of control. And what ensued was an astonishing multi-year discussion at first held in secrecy to protect all participants. There were people who were vehemently opposed to dialogue. The cardinal had called for it. He had also called for a moratorium on all the demonstrations. And people were very opposed to both of those actions that he had called for. There's an abortion clinic or a women's health clinic right by the post office. So as someone from Brookline, when you're just trying to go about your daily business, you're constantly, at that time, confronted by protesters. I think for people who lived in Brookline, there was a sense that we were invaded. And it was also the context, I think, nationally, was this whole sense of justifiable homicide. I mean, people were talking about that. There had already been some shootings in different places. I don't think we ever expected anything in Brookline. But I remember all of a sudden there were ambulances and, you know, state troopers and every police car in the town, you know, shooting down Beacon Street. And I was at a coffee shop and someone said that there were shootings at two clinics. This is a WBZ News 4 special report. A gunman opens fire in two Brookline clinics, clinics that perform abortions. Two people are dead, the suspect still at large tonight. A terrifying morning in Brookline, two people are dead, five others hurt. I learned that there had been shootings in my clinic. Nikki Nichols Gamble was longtime president of Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts. And so I walked in the door and saw Shannon Lowney's body on the floor and of course, police were everywhere and the media was everywhere. And um, it was devastating beyond, uh, beyond description. He drops the duffel bag, pulls out a rifle. The guy just came in the front door and started shooting the first thing he saw. Actually, it was just horror. It, the idea that, that this could happen and that it could happen here in, in Massachusetts sort of just down the street from us, was almost unthinkable. Madeline McComish, a chemist by profession, was president of Massachusetts Citizens for Life. People were saying that a pro-lifer did this when it's totally contrary to everything that the organization that I was president of stands for. It was, it was really just a terrible, terrible time. And thinking of those young women who had, who had been killed 
it it just was actually I I I spent the the next day throwing up actually that's what I was doing all day long on Saturday I believe this was a Friday that it happened why had it hit you so hard well because first of all it was totally unexpected there had been trouble down in Florida I think and maybe in an, in a few other places but I just never thought it could happen here but it did happen and the fact that we didn't know who it was that had done it and and it was you know he, 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 this person was at large and and that he had actually gone to to two clinics and and then we we didn't know what he would do next whoever he was it was just it was really a very terrible time well, I remember I was in my study in my office, and I had a call from a parishioner who was just sobbing. The Reverend Ann Fowler was rector of St. John's Episcopal Church in the Jamaica Plains section of Boston. She said, have you heard what's happened? And I said, no. And she told me about the shootings. And she was a, someone, a young woman who had been a very active pro-choice person uh, and had and knew my sympathies in that direction. And... It was it was just a nightmare. There was a, a vigil that evening down on Beacon Street, and I went. I put on my clerical clothes and, and went down. I wanted to be a pastoral presence and, and provide whatever comfort uh, I could and, and reassurance that sort of God and hope was in the midst of all this somehow. It was a terrible day. It was a very, very, very dark day. Barbara Thorpe directed the pro-life office of the Catholic Archdiocese of Boston. And to sit here now and to have had the um, experience that we have had together, um, I could never at that moment have thought it possible. Um, But in that, I think out of the level of human need, we needed to talk to each other. We needed to have you know, kind of, I suppose, somewhat of a, of a shared uh, healing of, or a healing journey that in some ways I think that's what part of the dialogue has, has been about. It was on New Year's Eve 1994, the day after the mysterious gunman left two dead and five injured in his wake in Massachusetts, that Virginia police arrested 22-year-old John Salvi, a scripture-quoting hairdresser from Hampton Beach, New Hampshire. He had driven his pickup truck south to Norfolk, where he fired dozens of bullets at a clinic that performs abortions there, but did not hit anyone. The terrifying two-day spree left activists on both sides of the abortion debate deeply shaken. Pro-choice advocates lit candles and placed flowers outside the clinics that had been hit. Massachusetts pro-choice governor William Weld later joined pro-life cardinal law in a call for dialogue between the camps. The challenge was quietly taken up by a neutral organization known as the Public Conversations Project, which had previously convened talks on abortion. This conflict has been going on for over a generation now in this country. And 
everybody has habitual ways of talking about it. Laura Chazen directed the project in Watertown, Massachusetts. When many people hear somebody else is pro-choice or pro-life, they uh, stereotype that person and avoid the topic. Many people, in addition, had been burned by conversations with people on their own side, quote unquote, for not being politically correct or enough. So that um, our challenge was really to find a way of, of structuring a meeting that would uh, require of people that they suspend their habitual ways of talking about the issue. It was just sort of in the environment, this notion of whether a dialogue, a conversation might help. Planned Parenthood president Nikki Nichols-Gamble. And I was, quite frankly, sufficiently desperate uh, in terms of wanting to try to avoid this from ever happening again that I, I just made a call within, you know, in that spirit. A striking theme that emerged in our lengthy interviews with the participants was that virtually no direct communication had previously occurred among these passionate opponents. Although prominent in their own movements and often quoted in the media, many had never actually spoken to each other. I can recall really quite purposefully uh, trying not to engage at all with the opposition in situations in which I was in the same room with them. I just ignored them. What, what was the aversion, do you think? Um, I had very, very strong negative feelings about the opposition, you know, not based on any knowledge of them as persons at all. Just uh, I had developed over the years of my work a real animosity toward anyone who held the other view. I had no interest in talking with them. You know, just no interest in engaging at all. Um, when I would see them in media situations, my only intent was to try to beat the devil out of them. And Barbara, would you say that mirrors the way you felt as well? Barbara's a nicer person than me. No, <laughs> hardly. <laughs> um, I, I don't know that I, – I certainly was not doing anything to seek out any personal contact with any leaders in the pro-choice uh, I think, like Nikki, the the negativity, the feeling of like, well, what would we say to each other? You know, how do you, how would you even? I mean, it probably wouldn't even have gotten that far as to what would we say to each other. It just would have seemed impossible. I understand that the uh, pro-life participants considered that it might be wrong to sit with the pro-choice activists who you felt were directly involved in the taking of life. Mm. That's probably still an issue. It's still an issue. Um, yes. I had a real fear, a real gut fear. Madeline McComish of Massachusetts Citizens for Life. We met before we came, and, and, and we prayed before we came, and I just had this gut fear of sitting down with people whom I believe were directly, are directly involved or were directly involved at that time in the taking of human life. What exactly was the fear? Just the idea that... The, this is someone who really is involved in taking innocent human life was frightening to me. And when you said that you prayed before joining the discussion, what was your reason for praying? Well, that we would reach out to these people in, in kindness and charity, that it wouldn't, because all too often 
when we would meet the other side, is it was not a comfortable situation. The major reservation I had, given the time in which we did decide to to meet together, was that I I felt fairly overwhelmed and certainly dedicated to doing what I had to do to make it possible for my organization to go on following these incidents. Planned Parenthood leader Nikki Nichols-Gamble. And so I had my hands full um, in terms of uh, staff morale, in terms of uh, rebuilding a facility, in terms of raising money to pay for what we had to do. So I, I had significant concerns about taking time away from that to have these conversations. The reason I did it is that I was hopeful that having the conversation might change something about the way the rhetoric and the way the dialogue played out publicly. After privately interviewing potential participants, the Public Conversations Project settled on six women activists half identifying themselves as pro-life, the other half as pro-choice, to become members of the confidential Boston Dialogues on Abortion. Initially, they agreed to attend four lengthy sessions over the course of a year, seated around a large conference table in the organization's comfortable basement. But as they gradually let down their guard, the women realized that their unlikely encounter had a quality that was somehow compelling— Removed from the usual dynamics of combat and competition, their in-depth exchange revealed a human side of these impassioned advocates. There are reasons why we stay away from each other, why people in dispute stay away from each other, because we've constructed these terrific enemy images and demonized people. Uh, So the staying away is a good idea because then you can reinforce your idea of the other as demon. Moderator Susan Padziba. But as soon as you sit with somebody and you, the stereotypes have to fall away because no one can be what someone else has conjured up in their mind for them to be, that they have to fall away. And then you're, you're, you have to move forward with that new information, which is to say, how could I have thought that? And if I was so wrong, what else am I wrong about? this person. And then you have the curiosity and the ability to learn. We all came in harboring a little bit of a hope that we might convert people on the other side. It became pretty plain pretty soon that we weren't going to do that. Reverend Ann Fowler. But um, 95% of the time it's been, I think, a, a genuine desire to understand one another and to figure out what we had to offer to the world outside of ourselves. My first reaction was astonishment, actually, at the the vast, what I perceived as the vast difference. Madeline McComish of Citizens for Life. And then came the pretty much sad conclusion that we really were never, ever going to agree on this issue. And always, as Anne says, there was always the hope, at least going in, that you would be able to show these people the truth, what you consider to be the truth, and have them accede to it. And when when you realize that that was not going to happen, that was that was difficult. And I'm sure it was it was not easy for you in either when you realized that that was never going to happen. 
But why did we keep on? Well, <laughs> we developed really, in spite of this, a deep affection for each other, which maybe is hard to understand. I think it is hard for people to understand how we could really differ so strongly. We have such strongly held views about this issue and about the morality involved and uh, and still have deep affection for each other, but it, it's true. I grew respectful of the people, and I had not been when I started. Explain that transition. Well, I, I came to know them as, as people of integrity, as, as people who were uh, articulate about their position and had a position that I felt I understood and could understand why they had it. Nikki Nichols Gamble of Planned Parenthood. I felt that um, that they did exhibit care, love, respect for me. As a person. As a person, yeah. Well, you know, a lot of that, actually. Uh, thoughtful notes and cards when, you know, things happened in my life. Um, thoughtfulness toward other people in the group when they were uh, experiencing concerns just you know what you would anticipate friends being for you and you felt that was genuine i felt that was genuine i, I mean I, it's not only that i feel that's genuine i i know that's genuine but they did not respect my position on this issue now is there a difference between respecting your position and agreeing with it uh, well, I think there is. Um, let, we'll let Barbara answer that in a minute. But I, I, I mean, I don't agree with their position, but I actually have a substantial respect for it, except for one part of it, and that is that they don't respect mine. I mean, that's that's where, for me, the rubber hits the road. I don't have any trouble respecting them as people, respecting the position they hold on this issue. But the fact that they want to make the world a place where my position is illegal is something that I find abhorrent. And for me, it then it starts to push the issue of what does it mean to respect a person and not a position. And what does that mean? And I can't. I. I haven't. That's. That's the one thing I'm really grappling with right now. I think kind of the this question is a very is very painful. Barbara Thorpe. It goes to the question you asked me earlier about about being in the same room. Um. And there's there's no way. That I can I can respect Nikki's position. And I can't. Um, you consider it just deeply immoral. Mm-hmm. It would be um, if you told me, or Nikki told me, that she supported um, slavery. I could not respect that position. And so the thing that that I suppose is the is the kind of hard or the inexplicable the mystery of this is as passionate as I 
feel about that, as deeply as I feel about that and believe about that, I really care about Nikki. And, and that care is a respect for her and her person and who she is, but not, not what she believes about abortion, no, and what she practices. And so it causes us a lot of pain. I'm very touched by the obvious affection that you two have for each other. Absolutely. Yeah. It's probably the best part of the dialogue. <laughs> Everybody's, I think, going to break out their handkerchiefs now. I got some. I think probably the biggest surprise of the dialogue that we <laughs> and I fell in love with each other. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Barbara Thorpe, along with Nikki Nichols Gamble, members of a dialogue on abortion convened by the Public Conversations Project in Watertown, Massachusetts. In our next segment, participants in the dialogue tell what they learned about really listening to someone with whom you ardently disagree. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To download an audio copy of this program and access other resources, please visit humanmedia.org. That's humanmedia.org. You can also access our other programs and send us an email from our website. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. And you can subscribe to our free weekly podcast, Humankind on Public Radio. This episode, Uncommon Ground, is dedicated to the memory of Laura Chazen. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.